In this episode, we are joined by John Eric Fossum, Christopher Lord, and Maretta Dotter and Lyron, who are co-authors with a number of other colleagues of the book Norway's EU Experience and Lessons for the UK on Autonomy and Wriggle Room. This book examines Norway's affiliation to the EU and assesses the potential suitability of this arrangement for the UK post-Brexit. It also looks at the relationship between Norway and the UK. The book's framework is the broader European context. Through an in-depth assessment of the Norway case, the authors ask how much autonomy and room for manoeuvre non-member states have when dealing with the EU. In doing so, the book provides insights about the post-Brexit European political order, and the book's analytical framework of autonomy and a complex interdependence has relevance well beyond the confines of the Norway case, including the UK, and not least since the EU-UK Trade and Cooperation Agreement leaves considerable uncertainty. The UK has been much more interested in highlighting its freedom uh, or room to manoeuvre post-Brexit rather than binding itself to international climate goals. Norway pushed for more ambitious formulations in this agreement. Is there a strong need for independence or is there a stronger need for collaboration? We don't have a choice, in, in my view, in, in how this affiliation is configured. And that is a, a problem. And therefore, there's a strong incentive for the government to depoliticize and to keep the issues down. And that is a reduction of autonomy in the first place. Great. So, Chris, Maretta, um, Don Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Yes. And can I begin with a question that we ask all our guests? What led you to write the book and what are the main messages you intended to communicate? Anyone want to start off? I think part of this is uh, Chris and me who are organizing a uh, mini-series with Rutledge on the UK's possible options in a post-Brexit period. So one in the mini-series, one book has come out on Switzerland, and this second one is on Norway, and there's a third book coming out on Canada. And the idea is that we will try to sum this up in a, in a book that covers all the EU's external relations. So that's sort of the... But of course, I think, and, and Chris can certainly confirm this, it is our longstanding interest in Europe with the UK having left the, the EU and the implications for the um, broader European political order that is, I think, lies at the heart of this, at least from my perspective. I'd like Chris to compliment this. Yes, I, I quite agree that this is really a big question about the whole nature of the European political order. I think it's really quite difficult to arrange relationships between members and non-members in such a way that they all have control of their own laws. There are huge constraints that they all impose on one another. But I have a special interest in why Norway is so important for the UK. It was when the UK decided not to adopt the Norwegian model that the UK decided to leave the single market. It wasn't the referendum which meant that the UK had to leave the single market. It is possible to be in the single market as a non-member. It was when the UK decided not to follow the Norwegian model, which is precisely that set of legal and institutional arrangements that you need for a non-member to take part in the single market. So if the UK ever wants to get back into the single market, it's going to have to ask itself again that very difficult question, can we possibly accept the Norwegian model? And I'd also like to say something about the orientation of this book. In that connection, we are extremely happy to have Merete Leiren with us in this um, podcast because um, I had been looking quite a bit at Norway's, um, and Chris also, of course, Norway's relationship with the EU, but we didn't have any specialist expertise in a number of the policy areas. And of course, it dawned on us that relations may be quite different depending on policy area. Also because the the affiliation 
because we have to keep in mind that Norway's uh, EU affiliation consists of around 100 agreements. So it's a very comprehensive one. And it is structured on how the EU was during the Maastricht period. So it's there, you, you find a kind of Maastricht, Maastricht treaty imprint on, on the affiliation itself. So that at the core of this, you find the European Economic Agreement, which is marked by what the lawyers call dynamic homogeneity. But that's not the case in security and and defense policies, which are much more bilateral. So the very organizing of the relationship varies with policy area. So one will not get a coherent picture simply by looking at the affiliation. And I also think that it is important to look at policy areas because we then also get into the left-right or ideological issues. The fact that we are talking about different socioeconomic models, and that has not been very much reflected in the UK debate, also on how they have been thinking about Norway, because Norway is part of managed economy. And, and, and there's this notion of the Nordic model, which is about uh, managing capitalism and a strong onus on on a significant state presence in the economy, managing uh, the economy, and also compensating for ills inflicted by by globalization and and international uh, affairs. So, so these are issues that that need also to be brought onto the table when discussing these affiliations, because too much focus has been been paid to the uh, on the um, formal affiliations, and not enough on how society has is managing relations and how it is being transformed by these types of affiliations, both in terms of um, the vertical relationship to the EU, but also horizontally between states. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that those questions were rarely engaged with, um, certainly during the referendum, I would argue, um, subsequently in the UK. But at the heart of the book is a focus on autonomy, and you, you're very careful to distinguish that from sovereign independence, and how autonomy and rigour are central to government actions under conditions of complex inter- interdependence. I just wondered why autonomy is an organising concept, and, and what's the relationship with, with rigour room? Well, it's interesting that we st- I think we started on, on the notion of rigour room, which is sort of a reflection of the Norwegian bait, which is about room of manoeuvre or, or action space that has gone on uh, and in relation to the EA agreement. But precisely in connection with the broader issues that, that we were interested in, in terms of socioeconomic model and so forth, we needed a broader concept that was beyond what you think about in terms of the legal affiliation. So that's why we tied regal room to questions of autonomy within legally binding relations, but then said states can be autonomous in relation to their own societies, but they can also be uh, autonomous in relation to uh, other states. And we we thought that autonomy was a more interesting concept because there's more play. It is not a legally formal legal concept in terms of uh, being recognized uh, uh, as uh, sovereign through international law, but autonomy is also um, more subjective and it, it also focuses much more on power relations and dynamics because it is ultimately a relational concept. You can get much more into the dynamics, uh, the power dynamics by means of this this term than than otherwise. So we understand regal room as a subcategory of autonomy. I, I, of course, started off with that obsessive slogan that we need to leave the European Union to regain control of our own laws, boundaries and and money. Um, And that made me think together with Maretta and John Eric and all our, all our other co-authors, that made me think about the whole problem of self-rule. The way in which I kind of see it now is that 
And there are two main components of self-rule. One is sovereignty, kind of understood as the legal right of final choice. And the other is autonomy, which is understood more, I think, as the ability to make choices. And as John Eric has just explained, within, within autonomy um, is, the further, is the further possibility that you can, you can kind of have a certain amount of real room. So it's not, it's, not, it's, not just, it's not just choosing particular laws and policies in the first place, kind of signing up to, uh, to, to, to commitments to the European, kind of pooling your sovereignty and all the rest of it. Even once you've agreed a set of policies and laws, there's a whole load of further flexibility in relationships between members and the non-members in the European Union. Yes, and and this also directs the attention towards the broader capacity that um, states and societies have to deal with external relations and the dynamic between internal and external relations. So so that's that's one element. And the other thing that we also have in the in the book itself is we we focus attention also on individuals and in the notion of individual autonomy. Um, because the European Union is a rights granter. So it equips citizens and companies with rights to operate within the um, European setting. And and these rights also EEA citizens and companies can hold against the EU. So there's a reciprocity in this. So what we get is a dynamic between individuals, uh, groups and states. And again, this individual dimension has not been very much brought up in the debates, certainly not in, in third countries' relations with the EU, where the literature has basically only focused on states' relationships with the EU. But the individual and group dimension is fundamental because it really reconfigures the relationship of, of the, 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 the very workings of states and how states uh, relate to each other. So we, so we thought that autonomy in that sense can be useful. I mean, of course, we're stretching it in that sense, but it it's sort of a nice umbrella to, to carve out a broader agenda, both in terms of the broader capacity that collectives have, but also in terms of the different statuses of individuals and, and, and organizations in the current European setting. I think describing it as um, as a subjective is a really interesting way of, do, of doing that because that, it restores agency in a way because you know too often you see these, these this relationship in terms of sort of zero sum sovereignty and um, that that you know, removes any sense of I mean the logic is just too um, too sort of total but also it removes any sense that there's a choice here and there's a choice that isn't as it um, zero sum. The book compares uh, Norway's relationship um, with the EU to the UK's. It draws lessons from Norway that could be applied to the to the UK or taken up in the UK, and it looks at the triangular relationship between Norway, the UK, and the EU. And you've got quite a strong claim, I think, about how the relationship between the, the between Norway and the UK is, is you know, can, can't be seen sort of independently of, of Norway's relationship with um, with the EU. And um, that's, you know, we we find similar when we've looked at um, UK um, bilaterals um, post Brexit. Um, but could you tell us the difference between the UK and Norway's formal relationship with the EU? And what's the value about thinking of, of relationships as triangular? Um, and I guess there's no kind of surprise in asking um, what's the relationship between the UK and the EU and what is the relationship between Norway and the EU. But what, what is perhaps surprising is um, thinking of this as a triangle in which the relationship between Norway and the UK is also of some significance. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure Moretta will be able to tell you quite a lot about this in the, the, the areas of climate change and energy. And um, this is the, those, those especially 
relationships between Norway and the UK. But I think there's a kind of a broader political connection. And that is that what Norway has done over kind of 30 years to organize its relationships with the European Union as a non-member is a possible starting point for the UK in deciding how it's going to organize its relationship as a non-member. Okay, the UK might well end up with by drawing the conclusion it wants nothing to do with the Norwegian model, but it's 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 hard really to to kind of um, avoid trying to think through exactly exactly what lessons there are from Norway's relationship with, um, with uh, the EU for the UK's relationship with the EU. So, you know, the, the, the third side of the triangle is important. Or, I mean, another reason why the third side of the, the triangle is important is that um, the kind of totality of <laughs> decisions and uh, cooperations and relationships um, made between the, the non-member non-members is important to the European Union, right? The, 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 the kind of overall, the, over, the overall balance and relationship between those European democracies that are inside the European Union and those that are not, the ins and the outs, um, how do you deal with non how do you deal with what Schimmelfenig calls voluntary non-members, right? Those who have those who have chosen through some democratic process not to be members of the European Union and which have to assume that they're going to uh, they're, they're, they're going to be outside the European Union for the foreseeable future, right? I mean, uh, the, 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 the relationships with which the EU offers one non-member perhaps constrains the relationships that it can offer another non-member. There has to be some kind of a consistency in, in how it organises its relationship with those who, those who are not part of it. I could also add that I think when, when one looks at this um, at the moment of Brexit, the UK was Norway's largest single trade partner. So it is a very significant relationship between uh, Norway and the UK. And as Chris was saying, this certainly pertains very much in, in the area of, of energy um, and feed into some of the conflicts now of electricity exports that, that uh, Moretta will, will say more on. But um, so, so, so we were thinking that maybe one, one could see conflicts spilling over between the EU-UK relationship to the... Um, to Norway um, and 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 put Norway in a more precarious position since since that relationship is shifting. This has a lot to do with the relationship between politics and law, of course. And if I if I should say something very simplistically about the difference between the Norway's relationship with the EU and the UK's is, of course, that Norway's relationship is much more strongly embedded in law and in the importation of EU law than is the case with the UK. Also, in terms of sanctioning and so on, where you have political mechanisms in in the EU-UK relationship, whereas you have, of course, um, monitoring body and clear sanctions in 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 Norway's relationship with the with the EU. So, so they are differently configured. And as Chris was saying earlier, the access to the single market also is significant because this is not about simply about the customs uh, about tariffs. It's really about having similar standards and having and having the the assurance of being equally treated when you're operating on the internal market and that assurance of course the uk doesn't have because it hasn't standardized there might be an informality uh, or, or informal relations uh, here that are facilitating relations between the uk and the eu because everybody knows that the uk was eu aligned for a long time but insofar as the uk is diverging from this then it will generate significant uncertainty. And then you're getting into a new, much more political dynamic. And I think the agreement is 
is is made precisely to 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 deal with that type of political agreement. On the other hand, the uh, TCA uh, is is leaves room for renegotiation and and changes. So so it's it, it there is scope for for changing this, and I think that this may be the case. Um, I I think the EU was for a long time. You, you, uh, interested in in aligning the UK as closely as possible to to itself, um, as as per the uh, famous uh, Barnier staircase of different affiliations. Because for the EU, the EA agreement is the preferred choice because it's the easiest op- um, arrangement to operate because it is basically about states incorporating EU law and therefore becoming similar. But the UK was not willing to do so. And therefore, for the EU, it, it, the, the situation changed to managing divergence instead. But now, of course, the question is, to what extent is this about managing divergence? And to what extent is it about facilitating convergence? I think that's, I think, I guess the, the TCA was designed to try to deal with, with that and, and leave flexibility in how one manages that type of, of, of relationship. The UK is meeting the climate crisis with leaving the union, while Norway has chosen to cooperate more closely with the European Union climate policy. It's quite interesting because both countries share many similarities. Both liberalized their power sectors early. Uh, They're connected via gas and electricity infrastructure. And they both see themselves as climate leaders, promoting also these cost-efficient solutions at a global level. Talking about this triangular relationship, we saw that the UK has been much more interested in highlighting its freedom uh, or room to manoeuvre post-Brexit rather than binding itself to international climate goals. And this was the case in the negotiations of the free trade agreement with Norway, where you could clearly see this, because Norway pushed for more ambitious formulations in this agreement, but the UK wanted uh, more lukewarm formulations on environmental protection instead to really highlight that and they are free to formulate uh, their own ambitious policy. But what this contribution also clearly shows is that Brexit certainly wasn't initiated in the area of climate and energy policy. Thank you very much. Uh, That's all very interesting. I just moving on, I wondered, the book argues that EU membership can lead to participation enhanced autonomy, but that there is also opportunities for non-member states. What do you mean by this phrase? And are there any examples? I mean, one could say that both independence and sovereignty are tailored to to uh, self fruit but autonomy has a bit more purchase on the balance between self rule and shared rule. If you, for instance, look at the EU's uh, strategic autonomy, it talks about this in cooperation, in close cooperation with like-minded partners. So that's a reflection of how the EU thinks about this in a form of shared rule. So you can be autonomous also in close collaboration and even in binding cooperation with others, as long as that relationship is aligned with your interests and actually also is enhancing your capacities or capabilities. 
to managing externalities and so forth. And of course, the book uh, says it's really interested in autonomy under complex interdependence. So, so that's setting the different a different frame than thinking about. So, I mean, sorry to say that recognizing the fact that we are interdependent and under various forms of symmetrical or asymmetrical in, interdependence, and that's what is the, an interesting question to explore in, in contemporary Europe. And that is, is referring to a different balance between self-rule and shared rule in the first place. Yes, they do distinguish between, and EFTA actually also distinguishes between decision-making and decision-shaping, since uh, they are included in preparatory bodies and so on. Of course, not across the board. And that also brings up the other issue of to what extent the government is actually instructing those who are in those bodies to pursue the government policies. So that's another issue that we are discussing in the book. Uh, thank you very much. It's a, a very important idea that exercising, and it comes through the book, that exercising autonomy can actually end up in uh, a state choosing to align or choosing to take on board uh, policy, EU policy direction. Uh, equally, it could end up going the other way, if I'm correct. Well, and it's, it's really interesting to me to hear this. I mean, there are lots of other questions that sort of come to mind, but but I mean, Norway has chosen to, as, as I remember someone saying to me very clearly in Oslo, you know, you, um, the, you know, Norway's part of the energy union, the security union, um, health union, you know, there's a lot a lot of opt-ins. And, um, but that also sort of presupposes not just a realisation of um, complex interdependent, but as a, an assumption of convergence of preferences and some kind of, you know, representative um, legitimacy that, um, that might be absent elsewhere. Yes, well, I mean, we have been discussing the issue of democratic legitimacy, of course, and and as you were saying, Hussein, it's it is a matter of virtual representation, not not physical presence. So, of course, one has to monitor the whole time whether there is a convergence of interests or not, and that is different from being present where decisions are being made. Um, so, make no bones about that. That is a qualitative difference. That's also why it is interesting to understand the type of of clawing back of autonomy that one can have under the type of relationship that that is the EEA, where you are much more of a rule taker than a, um, a part of being a rule maker. And I might also add, of course, that it is important to keep in mind that we have no say in the making of the framework under which Regal room and autonomy is being uh, organized because we cannot be part of treaty changes or the broader configuration of the European Union and have much less access to the European Council where decisions have been more prominent or decision making has become more prominent in connection with the EU's crises. So that's speaking to some of the limitations in this type of affiliation. Perhaps I could start with, uh, with uh, giving an example from climate and energy policy uh, where you can clearly see that it is in Norway's interest to cooperate. One example is the effort-sharing regulation. Uh, the effort-sharing regulation is a law uh, that sets emissions reductions targets for the EU as a whole and also for the individual member states in sectors that are not part of the European Union emission trading system. So the effort-sharing regulation covers transport, buildings, agriculture, uh, small industry and waste. Norway decided to cooperate with the EU in these sectors in 2019. And this was important because it gave Norway the opportunity to pay for emission cuts abroad in other EU countries, uh, also in the sectors that are not covered by the emission trading system. And 
This way, Norway could commit itself to a higher climate target in the negotiations about the Paris Agreement. Norway would otherwise probably not be able to to commit itself to that to such a high climate target. So by cooperating with the EU, Norway could continue to be a climate leader at the same level as the EU. It is also an example that shows how cooperating with the EU actually can increase a country's rig room because it increased its scope in choosing where to make the emission cuts. It increased the possibility of making emission cuts abroad uh, rather than cutting emissions at home. And it's also kind of the opposite of what the UK has done, um, which instead struggle with, for example, zombie legislation. That is legislation that is not being enforced because of lack of sanctions. The UK doesn't have the same obligations, may lack the same apparatus to um, that Norway has with the European Commission and the European Surveillance Authority on its back, so to say. So I think that's an interesting um, interesting understanding of autonomy. Could I ask, add something to this too? Because Marietta says is very important and it brings up questions, as, as she says, about how you understand autonomy and also in relation to the the differences between problem, the nature of problems and challenges uh, like slow burning crises, or maybe not even slow burning crisis like the, the, the climate uh, and energy issue, but in relation to the to the timeline and dynamics of the political uh, cycle um, and the discrepancy between these in modern societies. So, so that that brings up a, a question of, of of finding proper uh, frameworks for doing so. So, one could say that I would I would argue personally that I don't see an uh, autonomy as a panacea for for solving this. I see it perhaps as a very important and useful intellectual tool to direct attention to these types of issues because I think it, it helps us to 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 focus on places and, and issues and concerns that we did not do earlier. So in that sense, I'm more sanguine about how we, we use the term, but I do think it is very useful to to help us to uncover and develop a a, a, a different research agenda that we than we had had so far. Those are very interesting points and, and the point we've you've Mahet uh, covered climate policy very, very compellingly here. The book also has many other chapters. You mentioned that, uh, John Eric. Um, and for instance, fisheries, agriculture and agriculture, uh, where Norway sought to remain outside the single European market, but did decide later on to join the EU's framework on uh, sanitary and phytosanitary measures. Is it fa- fair to say that the concern of farmers over fishers and fishers over non-tariff barriers to trade trumped the importance of regulatory autonomy in this case. I think the dynamic was mainly one in the fishery sector where it was particularly important to have market access. Norway has always wanted to protect its agriculture because it's fairly marginal. You have the idea that the Finns introduce of Arctic agriculture, for instance. So it is it is not a, a it, 3% of the land is arable. So um, agriculture is therefore very precarious in, in Norway, and um, and there was a strong onus on protecting that. Um, for fisheries, the dynamic is different, and that dynamic is also changing because of aquaculture. There's this an increasingly strong onus on market access because it is a larger proportion of what you, you catch from the sea is not um, 
migratory in in or or being caught in the traditional way but it's being farmed and that that so you don't have jurisdictional issues on that but you do certainly have market access issues and and in that connection um it was vital for norway to get as uh, as as easy an access as possible and that required being part of the eu's uh, animal health and and phytosanitary arrangements and so on and these are very dynamic areas so in the end 40% of of regulations or so on that norway imports into agriculture are in those areas even if norway is very concerned about protecting that uh, sector from external competition and has very strict um, quotas and regulations and so forth so with fisheries the issue is somewhat different um there were divides inside of norway between for instance northern fishermen with smaller uh, boats and so on that were very much against eu uh, affiliation and central norwegian larger trawlers and so on that definitely wanted this and it reflects the difference between uh, control of the resource versus uh, market access um, in fisheries but the, the dynamic is somewhat different in agriculture in that sense and if if we then look at uh for the uk in terms of of fisheries one of the interesting dynamics of course is that it's not only the eu and the eu's fisheries policy that is important it's also international law that sets external outer limits to what can be done within the fisheries sector so you can leave but you cannot fully leave in that sense because there are other forms of regulation so it's a more complex tapestry of regulations in that sense yeah that's very interesting i picked up a figure in the book uh, from uh, the exports of, of salmon to the eu farm salmon i think uh, 62000 tons in 92 to 1.1 million tons in 2021 so that really illustrates the importance of market access there uh, for the fishers industry yeah. um so is there is there anything that the uk can learn from the norwegian experience of annual negotiations with the eu in this area or is this a bit too technical. <laughs> I would like to defer to our expert on on fishery in the book. Um, yes, for sure. So, so we'll recommend reading the chapter in the book in this case. Yeah. Um, overall, how 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 success how successful has Norway been in maintaining autonomous decision making capacity? I think one also needs to preface this question with is is there a strong need for independence or is there a stronger need for collaboration and i think that overall norway has a lot of common interests after all its closest neighbors are members of the eu those those countries it, it collaborates very strongly with uh, denmark sweden especially sweden actually finland germany these are all members so there is a very strong horizontal dynamic that would affect both uh, the the autonomy and regulatory room Norway, but also its objectives. Because as I was hinting earlier about the, the Nordic model, of course, this is a regional um, composite with a set of values and ways of, of doing things. And and of course, these relations and these conceptions, they they last, they, they, they have path dependency. So so one should expect that the number of, of issues and questions would be shared with others. And then there are some of course, that it would be setting Norway apart. Of course, um, Norway's significant um, oil presence, of course, would set it apart economically from other other states. Now this has changed in the terms of uh, security of supply uh, and the whole 
uh, the the problem of of the war and so on. So this has made that sector even more important, um, and it also has exposed the the fragility of um, of supplies, pipelines, and so forth. You know, the, um, I think there's eight thousand kilometers of pipelines. So we had this accident in the or, or the incident in the um, Baltic um, Sea where the where the Nord Stream pipeline, and I think that sent shivers down the spine of of Norwegian decision makers, and I think also in in Europe about security of supply. So so that's another issue that that comes in and um, that has to do with with the bonds and ties because we are mutually dependent on this, of course. I mean, it, it has to be said that Norway has been able to run a significantly different social model, a significantly different social and economic model within the constraints of the single market. So you know, plainly, plainly, that is that is that that is that that, that doesn't limit its autonomy. I mean, when when you when you when you think back to the referendum debate, and the whole argument that uh, membership of the European Union was a constraint on how far the UK government could regenerate the left behind areas of, of, of the UK. Well, I mean, it's extraordinary that nobody pointed out that that doesn't stop Germany from from reconstructing. The east of Germany after 1991, within within the single market, it hasn't stopped Norway within the single market from from um, supporting remote communities. No, I think yeah, on, this... on, that, on, on that point, I mean, I think that um, I mean, you know one of the things that really struck me as well is that if you think about how many different um, sort of policy approaches has been taken in the UK since 1973, you know, you have old Labour, new Labour, Thatcherism. Um, all consistent with membership of the single market somehow, but but I think your example um, you know is a really really strong one. Sorry, John Eric, I cut you off. No, um, I mean it, it's also a matter of actually using autonomy or or developing objectives. And I think one of the the issues with the uh, EA, EA agreement, especially, is it tends to depoliticize issues because you have to work out conflicts and so on domestically. The the fora that are devised for for coordinating policies at the EFTA side in relation to the EU within the EA framework are such that you don't have large social participation or and and this are happening much more under the radar in in terms of public and issues come to parliament which is then basically sanctioning issues so you don't have the the types of debates and your society is not actually being woken up by uh, the EU affiliation, as you as you would have in members, because you have elections and so forth, it is clear to citizens what is at stake in the European setting. This is not so in Norway, and it is not in the same way communicated. So that's the democratic problem itself in terms of 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 people being made responsible for their own relationship. I mean, this is a horrible way of putting it, but but. Um, there is a problem in this affiliation in the sense that it 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 removes space for politics as as working out different opinions and so on um where you where you in 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 the eu f- for members can work it out at multiple levels we don't have a choice in in my view in in how this affiliation is is configured and that is a, a problem and therefore there's a strong incentive for the government to depoliticize and to keep the issues down and that that is to me a a, a reduction of autonomy in the first place because it doesn't formulate uh, positions it doesn't look actively towards what other people are doing in terms of 
how do they deal with issues? How do they relate to to EU directives and so forth? And I just wondered how that affected um, sort of really major, wide-ranging cross-sectoral policy like the Green Deal. What kind of challenges has that that presented to Norway? Norway participates in key parts of the European Green Deal, also in areas where the country is not obliged to do so through the agreements of the European Economic Area. But European Green Deal creates a number of challenges uh, because it's thundering on like a heavy freight train at full speed and it's cross-sectoral, as you say, so it, it cuts across all sectors and policies. And Norway tries to meet this large freight train by picking a little bit here, picking some policies there. Uh, this is relevant given the the EEA agreement, and this is not relevant. Uh, we choose to participate here, but not there. This is not so easy when the European Green Deal is so holistic. So, for example, in agricultural policy, which is outside the EEA agreement, but agricultural policy is included in the climate policy and the European Green Deal. So suddenly, agricultural policies in Norway are affected by the European Union. So there could be some political explosives coming as this happenings as this is happening um we also see that norway is uh, struggling with a large implementation gap there are large delays in implementing the eu policies and uh, at this high speed as at which the european green deal is taking place this delay or lagging behind becomes even a, a larger challenge so this raises really interesting questions about representation, government, about monitor, you know, about how Norway monitors and you know, communicates its message in, in in Brussels, but also how it's consulting and keeping businesses and other um, other social actors in, um, informed about what's happening at the EU level. I just wondered if that has any relation to what you describe as Norway's integration paradox and what it means for democratic legitimacy. Yes, the. Um... Integration paradox is something that was initially pointed to in the uh, large EEA evaluation from 2012 uh, and that we have picked up on because it is quite paradoxical that the um, EU affiliation issue is probably the most conflictual issue that Norway has experienced in the post-war period. At the same time, there is very little opposition towards the importation of rules in an ongoing manner. I think they pointed at in 20, 2012, I, point, I think they pointed to 168 legal acts out of eight or 9,000 that had sparked controversy. So, so this seems quite paradoxical given the high level of conflict and yet the very great readiness in, in absorbing uh, this framework. So how to account for this? One uh, issue is um, depolitization, but I mean, Eventually, that would find its way into the political arena and and would feed off. I think it has to do with the structure of the affiliation as one element in that it directs attention much more towards single issues rather than the the um, broader context. And I think also um, the, the fact that you have to hash out conflicts in, internally, the, there is a strong incentive not to play up issues. So so that there is a, a lack of, of, of debate and a strong incentive on this, not only among the political parties and coalitions, but even into some of the organizations that are deeply riven and, and divided on this. 
we've looked at at the political parties, and they have instituted uh, gag rules against discussing changes to the affiliation. And I think that that actually also um, is manifesting itself in some of the important organizations that are not particularly keen to talk about these issues because they are so conflict ridden. So then it is easier to move on and um, and to to uh, to adopt uh, pieces of legislation and so forth. But that also brings up the issue of compatibility. To what extent are these compatible? Is it the question of monitoring? Do we actually know the effects? Is that the real issue? Or is it the fact that the conflict potential in in what is being uh, imported is sufficiently low to make a, a significant hay, suggesting that Norway has more autonomy or ability to at least compensate or deal with um, these types of, of, of uh, issues and problems that emanate from the affiliation? We'll come, we'll come back to um, some larger questions on autonomy as we, as we finish, and we're, we're now sort of coming up to the to the home straight. But I just wondered if you were to think about the, the changes in the relationship between the UK and the Norway and Norway that have changed, so between Norway and the UK that have changed since Brexit. I wondered what you would point to. I mean, there's obviously an FTA agreement in, in 2021, but anything else you think is really significant and substantial? So the rules around country of origin uh, in the trade and cooperation agreement between the UK and the EU defines Norway as a third country. So it means that batteries produced in Norway and exported to the UK via the EU faces an additional customs duty. And this additional customs duty can make it more attractive to establish uh, battery factories, for example, in Sweden rather than in Norway. So if Norway had followed the negotiations between the EU and the UK even better than it did because these negotiations were ongoing at the same time. Perhaps Norway could have been able to avoid this customs duty that Norway as an EEA country would have been exempted from this tax. But this is an example of how there's a lot of details and uh, items to follow up on as well when you have these separate uh, agreements. I think the political relations are quite good and that this has never really been an issue. And um, I think this, this has been reflected in the officials that we have spoken to, the UK officials, certainly. Now, I could also add that in the triangular relations, uh, Norway voted with its feet, uh, particularly the previous government, the uh, center-right government, was very uh, clear on the need to maintain a very strong relationship with the EU. So an implicit prioritization of that, I don't think it's saying that necessarily it's, it's so much more important, but it was a, a legally regulated and predictable relationship and that they emphasized that and that they wanted a similar type of relationship also with the UK. As a small state, um, Norway would be very interested in having a binding, um, a legally binding international collaboration because it is much more predictable. So that would be the preference. Also, Brexit did not generate a lot of appetite to 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 emulate the UK uh, experience in Norway. Um, part of this, of course, was because of the way Brexit uh, unfolded and the uncertainties it generated. But I think also part of this was because. It was driven by a government that had a much more right-wing policy orientation than you find in Norway. Hardly any uh, parties in Norway would go as far in in in, in market marketization as as the UK did, um, and it would 
so there, there is, as we have been talking about, the social model, and, and therefore a more social democratic orientation in in Norwegian society that, in that sense, sets it apart uh, from the current UK government, not necessarily Labour, of course, in the UK. There's also the important question of how Norway would react to any suggestion that the UK should join the EEA. There was this famous occasion when one Conservative MP from Norway said something, I think it was in The Guardian, said something in the UK media about don't do it, don't, don't join the EEA, you will not like it. Um, I mean, one of the big problems, of course, with the EEA is that it does depend on a high level of domestic compromise. And something else we haven't mentioned yet, it also depends on compromise between the three members of the EEA. Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein have to decide together how to react to a particular European Union proposal. Otherwise, the European Union can suspend parts of the EEA. Um, so here's an agreement that depends on a high level of domestic compromise and compromise between all members of the EEA. Yet the UK, as we know, has a highly adversarial system of politics in which everyone is fighting one another the whole time. Um, you, know, you, 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 you can question whether the UK really has that kind of commitment to domestic compromise that is needed to be a part of the EEA. Yes, uh, I wrote the book together with Hans-Petter Grave, um, a legal scholar of Norway, um, in 2018 on squaring the circle on Brexit. And the chapter on on UK possible um, a- entry into the EA, we, we um, labelled uh, um, an elephant in the boat, and we were thinking about a fairly small boat. So having the UK in the EA would be like having a large elephant in a rather small boat which would be a very rocky experience, basically. So it was interesting to see Norwegian politicians too, like Prime Minister Solberg. She very much fought in favor of the EEA agreement domestically because um, of the uh, of the fear of, of unraveling this, um, uh, but also warned against, against it in the UK. So you get mixed signals on this because um, it, for many people, it's not the preferred choice. It, it it has come across as a kind of compromise in Norway. It was actually established as an interim agreement in the late 80s. Um, and I think it was intended to be an interim agreement, but it has solidified. And I should also add that it has not been textually updated at all, so that there are discrepancies in, in, in how the EU has uh, uh, developed and how this uh, agreement is, is currently constructed. So that's also why there is the issue of whether something is relevant for the EA or not, and, and also for Schengen. Coming back to your examination of autonomy, you discussed the various dimensions, including will and state capacity. You've mentioned this before. There's an important assumption of activeness and indeed strategic activeness in, in this conceptualization of the term. In your view, can such an assumption be applied to the UK post-Brexit or indeed post-referendum, um, and what is the role of what Michael Moran has called statecraft in terms of which governments define and redefine state and nation in order to position themselves and their country in the world? The, the concept of statecraft, I think, is really interesting here. But I mean, it, it seems to me that um, the choice for the UK is one between uh, state, statecraft that is concentrating on building free trade agreements globally, right? So you're reconfiguring your state so that you can build you can build free trade agreements globally. 
that versus the Norwegian option, which is not so very far from full membership of the European Union, which is that you are a part of the single market, you have reconfigured your state so that you can participate in the single market, right? And I guess there are two, there are two ways in which you can, can configure your state so that you can participate in the single market. You can either do it by being a member of the European Union, or you can do it by being a member of the EEA, which is a different way of configuring your state to be a part of the single market. If you're part of the European Union, I mean, it's basically the ordinary legislative procedure that you, 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 will, you will want to be able to influence the ordinary legislative procedure in churning out um, single market regulations, you will be a full member and you will have decision rights within the ordinary legislative procedure in churning out um, single market regulations. That's how statecraft, that is how reconfiguring your state would work to make the single market work within the European Union. But configuring your state to make the single market work within the EEA is a rather different process. There's a lot of pre-commitment, right? You know, you're pre-committed to dynamic alignment, to trying to kind of keep your rules up to date and aligned with the European Union. But the procedures are different. Um, in that, you know, basically the procedure with the EEA is that you, you get consulted quite early on, but you're not, you're ultimately, you're not a member state. You do not sign up to the EU's legal principles. There is no supremacy of e EU law in Norway. There is no direct effect, right? So the, the, the different, I suppose there are three models of statecraft. One, one is statecraft reconfiguring your state so that you can pursue free trade agreements globally and then the two single market um, forms of statecraft are being a being a member of the eu or being a member of the eea yeah i i also think that you could think of statecraft um that it would relate also to the size of a state in the sense that a small state will be much more conscious of the constraints of its ability to affect the global situation. And it would focus more on statecraft internally to how to deal with these types of, of influences that you are inevitably encountering anyway. Uh, whereas a larger state, a state with a greater self-confidence um, and an imperial tradition such as the UK would have a different view on this with higher ambition on, on exercising statecraft on the international stage. And that in this sense, Brexit would of course be a test of its ability to exercise a global statecraft. That's a dynamic and, and an issue we don't have in Norway in the same sense. We don't have these types of ambitions and historical legacies. Thank you. I mean, you, you, you're touching upon it here. Then um, the book does cover, cover the difference between autonomy of will and autonomy of capacity, also for actions with countries around the world and in multilateral forums. I mean, how, how important do you consider the extra EU dimension? You, you've touched upon it already a bit here, uh, both for, the Nor for Nor Norway and, and the UK. Well, I, I get a sense from some of the contributions in the book, at least, that there are significant constraints on foreign policy and so on. Um, the EU carries quite a lot of weight because it is a large economic player globally and that sets the the framework also for for what other other affiliated states can do but of course formally speaking when you are in the ea you can form agreements with other parts of the world so you have that leverage and that's different of course um, with a state as part of the eu's customs union which cannot form these types of of, of affiliations or, or agreements and so on the question of course is 
if you form um, agreements like that, are they substantively very different from what they would be if you were a member? And I think the UK has an experience here in, in relation to its agreement with Japan that is almost like a carbon copy of the agreement that the EU made with Japan. So that speaks to possible limitations also in exercising and throwing around your weight on the global stage. But I guess that could also vary with policy area. And we haven't uh, examined that across the board in all the policy areas. But I think it's an important question to to examine. On, on policy areas, um, we should, I think, talk a little bit about defence and security and the other aspect of Norway, Norway's relationship with the European Union. It's ad hoc participation in the CFSP, and it's really quite formal participation in a lot of internal security matters. Um, Moretta talked about a great big freight train that's coming down the road in, in the, with the new Green Deal and so on and so forth. But I think another possible great big freight train that may be coming down the road is um, collaboration in defence and security. And given that a whole lot of, uh, of, of European countries have um, lent most of their a large part of their military equipment to the Ukraine, presumably going to have to retool after the Ukraine war. They're going to have to rebuild their defence capacities all over again. They don't have any money to do this. So defence collaboration seems to me to be quite likely to be a big, big issue on the agenda, that they're going to have to collaborate in, in, in de- developing new capabilities simply to keep the costs down. And of course, the UK, I'm sure, would be, really want to be a part of many of those kind of pieces of, of, of defence collaboration. And of course, it's a big player anyway as a security provider and a big spender on research um, security R&D. So I think a big question is going to you know, be how far the UK goes back to something along the lines that May was proposing with a security treaty as a kind of parallel political relationship, making up for the fact that the UK is not in the single market. And, and, you know, how close would that be to what Norway is already doing, which is collaborating on an ad hoc basis with the CFSP and, and associating with the European Defence Agency and all of these things? One of the things that seems to make um, the Norwegian approach work is there's high levels of, of trust on the part of Norwegian citizens and their government. And it's a bit different from the UK. And I just wondered what you saw as a relationship between trust and capacity. I think there is. I think there is a clear capacity that, of course, some people would say that trust is related to proximity because we have a tradition of having very close relationships between people and, and, and their leaders. Uh, we, we abolished aristocracy in, 18, uh, in the 1820s and there has been the sort of historical, historical tradition of independent farmers and so on. So there has this self-conception of Norwegians as quite independent and therefore not wanting to have a sort of governing elite that is separate from people. So that type of notion of proximity would be one source of, of trust. But I think I think it's a fact of, of living in a secure uh, welfare state. I mean, after all, one of the uh, main reasons why so many people voted no to EU in, in 94 was a defense of, of an interventionist state and the welfare state. Now, what happens to that in, in this circumstance I, uh, of, of affiliation and so on, I'm, I'm puzzled by it because Norwegians also have a very strong sense of, of being uh, in charge. I mean, a strong tradition of, of self-governing and democracy since the uh, dissolution of the union with Sweden. So one might think that the EA agreement and so on would eat, eat away at this trust, but I, I cannot see that it has. And that's, that is intriguing to me. So I don't know exactly what, 
what actually keeps the the trust. Um, but I think it is the sense of epistemic uh, security that you have from uh, having a, um, a a a welfare state. I mean, in com- comparison to the UK, where we saw with with migration and so on. I mean, in Norway, you have policies in place to to compensate the losers of migration, social benefits and so forth. So it's more difficult to make the claim that migrants are are coming in and taking jobs and and taking things away because you still have uh, a kind of social contract with with the state that you you have entitlements and so on. I mean, I I, I guess there's trust within Norway. And then there's the question of trust between governments and governments and the European Union. On trust within Norway, maybe what is important, uh, maybe one important factor here is what John Eric was hinting at earlier, that the EEA is an acceptable second best for a very large part of the population, a very large part of the kind of political spectrum. Now, I wonder whether you get the same kind of effect in the UK with our much more polarised politics, you know, whether we could ever end up in a situation in which something like the EEA could be, could at least be accepted by almost every, almost everyone as some kind of a second best. Well, we're coming to, um, to towards the end of our, our, our conversation, and I just wanted to ask you a kind of, in a way, kind of wrap-up question. So, actually, you know, there's books that, um, that I did with Anand, and um, and then in the in the nineteen nineties, we 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 also used the notion of state autonomy, but we we applied it to members to member states and just thought about their their sort of latitude and their their, their leverage and. Um, Something that was really important to us was a kind of third concept, I mean, of, of, of strength and power. So, you know, like you, we distinguish between autonomy and sovereignty, but we also thought, well, actually, if you're if you're a small state in particular, overall, would you say that your strength or power or influence is enhanced by by your membership? And I just wondered, you know, would your view be that Norway is stronger in total as a consequence of the combination between the formal relationship it has with the EU and despite the consequences and the way it's used this wriggle room? Um, has it found a happy space? Personally, I would not think so. I mean, in terms of the ability to ensure that policies are carried out through legal regulation, yes, capacity enhancement through the uh, through this arrangement. The, the problem with this is that it is contingent on the others agreeing to bind themselves. And that decision you have no say on. So that's the rubber in this. As long as you, you have a uh, an agreement that is fixed and that you know that the other ones will honor, yes, then you do certainly have a capacity enhancement. I mean, how, how far the um, present arrangement makes Norway any happier to a certain extent, I think, depends on what the alternative would be. If the alternative was just unilateral approximation to almost all EU policies and laws, then um, even a limited relationship which gives powers to shape and to be consulted um, is valuable. Another factor, of course, is the term which we mentioned earlier, convergence of preferences. If it just happens that European Union legislation, regulation in matters such as the single market is fairly close to how Norway would have framed its own rules and regulations on its own, um, then that again makes the relationship easier. But that's a very kind of output legitimacy argument. You know, you're, you're, you're saying everything's fine so long as you get pretty well the same outcomes as you would have got if you'd chosen on your own. Um, <laughs> and it, it doesn't really quite answer the difficult input legitimacy questions like, do you really have equal control over your own laws? Our final question, um, we recognise, of course, it's terrifically unfair, but we want to ask you if you think that um, you, you, what your assessment of the UK would be. Is it stronger um, at this current moment um, than it was as a member state? 
My favorite statistic about the European Union is that almost all European, almost all council administers' decisions, where they involve any voting at all, are usually um, taken by something very, very close to unanimity. And most member states are only outvoted about two to three percent of the time. And this was also the case with the UK. I mean, even when Cameron tried as hard as he could to, um, to, to, to oppose as many questions as he could in the Council of Ministers, the UK only voted against the majority 12% of the time. Over most, over most of the history of QMV, the UK has only been outvoted around 2 or 3% of the time. It also, you know, at a more structural level, it also had opt-outs and all of the things it didn't really want. So it was able to choose just that bit of the European Union that it wanted to be a part of, the single market. Um, uh, Ivan Rogers talks about the UK having a single market only membership. It was, it was able to just focus on that bit of the European Union it most wanted. It was opted out from a whole lot of other things. It could participate on a more, more ad hoc basis uh, or even on a basis of unanimity and things like the CFSP. And then on top of that, in, in, the single, in those single market ma matters um, where it really, really was committed, it was only outvoted several two or three percent of the time. So I, I, I can't believe anyone can make a convincing case that the UK is stronger outside the European Union than when it was in a European Union, commitments to which it was entirely able, to, almost entirely able to control. I would um, distinguish between absolute and relative uh, power in this sense. And of course, if Brexit had led to the EU becoming weakened in relative terms, then obviously the UK situation would have been better. But that has not been the case as far as I can tell. If anything, the EU has actually at least uh, in some ways able, been able to consolidate and therefore has, even by dropping a significant member, has actually not been as weakened as we, I think most of us expected at the time of Brexit. We we feared that this would be a, a one of the significant outcomes, that the, the, the EU was div divisible. Now, what we have seen through Brexit is that if the EU is divisible, so is the UK. So I would side with Chris and say that on balance, I think the UK situation is weaker. Well, we could keep carry on for a lot longer. I certainly I feel, but um, uh, thank you a great deal for sort of fascinating, engaging conversation. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, John Eric. Thank you, Maretta. Um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Books on Brexit is for anyone interested in the negotiations that form the basis of the UK's relations with the EU and for perspectives on the UK and EU after Brexit. Please listen to other episodes for a range of views.